Hello, I'm Simit Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. Firstly, big thanks to all of you who've been listening in and uh, keep it going. Uh, our downloads are, are rocketing and it's brilliant that you're finding this useful. And remember, if you've got a story you'd like to tell on the podcast or you think you know someone in business or science doing something that's really interesting, then do get in touch. Today's podcast, I'll be looking at technologies around getting the most out of wind in a big research project. But before I do that, a couple of things really caught my eye. Remember to check out futurenetzero.com and energylivenews.com for all these stories. But the most interesting one, I think, really, that's hit me this week is fight climate change, not each other. And that's the message from Sultan Al-Jabbar, who is the sort of COP president for COP28. Now, you may know that COP28 is going to be in Dubai, and there's been a lot of furore that uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar, who takes the role of, of heading it up, um, is actually the head of a massive uh, oil company. But he's putting a point which is, I think, quite interesting. He said, look, there are times where we have to get together and face a common threat. And instead of fighting each other about who's done the most or whatever, we have to work together. Now, you could say, well, that's kind of lip service, because he would say that, because he's got his own interests at heart. But his message is right. If we don't work together, it's no good sitting here in the West and pointing fingers at people and going, you should be decarbonizing, when they face a real challenge between, you know, keeping their people out of poverty and using the resource that they have. You've got to take the world with you. So it'll be interesting to see. Again, I think these things matter. The fact that this COP, like the one uh, last year in Egypt, you know, they're taking place in the Middle East, which is the real kind of hub of where you bring the world together. And of course, the home of fossil fuels. So let's see what happens there. There's also been a story uh, about the national grid and it ties into the podcast today because the national grid wants to build massive 50 meter high pylons across Lincolnshire because it's trying to create pathways to take offshore wind farms and energy obviously generated by that around the country but as ever this is the real problem there are a lot of people uh, in that area who think that this is going to devastate their economy because no one likes to see unsightly pylons and that it's not right for the environment Again, a big balance. You know, if we want to decarbonize, we're going to have to take uh, things like this infrastructure, which, let's be honest, who wants a bunch of pylons uh, in their view of the countryside? None of us. Who wants to live next to a wind turbine? Very few of us. But if we want to go greener and cleaner, these are the things we'll have to do. So, again, it's one of those um, tales that gives you a slight idea of where things are going in terms of uh, the wider picture. It's not just easy to say let's do that and a couple of other things um that uh, are quite interesting again check them out uh, on futurenetzero.com um solar there's a prediction that solar will hit 700 gigawatts within two years two years so we're at 360 uh, but we could get globally solar to double um that's a, a report that's been written by uh, a company called clean energy associates who've looked at the world's solar supplies. Of course, there's a huge part of it that, funnily enough, is coming from one of the world's biggest polluters, China. Uh, Chinese companies are rapidly producing photovoltaics. They always have. And it looks like they're going to sort of double their efforts. So again, an interesting story about kind of 
where we're going in terms of global capacity to try and move away. And, and the last thing that caught my eye um, before we do the podcast is the sad sort of action of, of the cyclone that battered New Zealand. And if you've seen the stories of the flooding, Cyclone Gabrielle and uh, the climate minister in New Zealand, uh, a guy called James Shaw, actually said, now, whether you can pin it on this, but he basically believes that this cyclone has been worse than others because climate change uh, was a factor. Uh, this is the most significant weather event we've seen in the century, he said, and he blamed it on climate, a climate-related event. Now, it's always tricky, and a politician can say what they want to do. You, there's weather and there's climate, and cyclones happen at this time of year uh, down in, in the Pacific. So it's hard to say that. But yes, look, globally, we all know there's been a shift, and perhaps he's right. Perhaps these sort of extreme events, maybe they would have happened anyway, but they're exacerbated by the actions uh, of our pollution, particularly in our emissions. Right, that's a quick catch up on the news. And let's talk about this week's podcast. Well, in this week's podcast, as I said, it's about wind. And it's about research by a uh, independent research organisation called Sintef, which sits, uh, it's one of Europe's biggest research organisations. And it's been looking at wind capacity and projects not just across Europe but also across the world and looking at one of the big issues of, of how we get to where we need to be and if you look at it the easiest quickest build out is always offshore wind and that's really what this report and the research is looking at but it's looking at how do you make sure offshore wind is good i.e good for energy generation but also good for the environment and they've done a lot of work looking at kind of how the uh, cabling goes, what technologies could be used to do less disruption to the seabed, how you protect sea mammals. And I caught up with John Orlov Tander, chief scientist with Sintef, who took me through uh, exactly where we are globally with offshore wind. Can you explain what Sintef is? Yeah, Sintef is uh, a non-profit uh, independent research organization. We are about uh, 2,000 people from a variety of nationalities, uh, but located in, in Norway. Uh, I think we have 75 nationalities in Sintef. So we hire the best people, of course, uh, to do research, 2,000 people. And we, we do research on a variety of things. Offshore wind is one of our big activities. So you are not you are not owned by anyone. You're not funded by a, a big company. You are researchers, you know, not for profit. So if you don't know any asking, how how is how is the system funded? How is the because people always say what's the kind of precedence and the 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 the, the quality of this research is not coming with a special kind of commercial edge. No, we have a setup where we have something like five, six, seven percent base funding from the government, which we receive based on the amount of publications and so right. things like we do. And then the rest we get in competition with others, uh, where we apply for research grants from the Research Council of Norway and from okay. the European uh, Commission. And we always work 
together with industry partners and university partners and others. We have collaborations, for instance, also with partners in the UK. And uh, but we are independent and, uh, and non-profit. So all uh, all uh, surplus we may uh, make one year goes back into research the next year. When we look at um, this, you know, as I said in the little intro there, John, you know, we we've got this huge potential now and most people probably know that we're sitting on a sort of a gold mine of wind because we're an island but you know Norway Portugal there's a, there's certain parts of uh, Europe in particular let alone around the world where wind is kind of you know could be really utilized I don't know whether you've got the answer to this but globally how big could wind be for us as a species because Probably in every continent, there's an area that could be exploited to become a big sort of hub for wind, the way we're trying to do in the North Sea right now. Yes, absolutely. So if you look at uh, predictions for the future, how to um, develop the energy system so we can have a safe and reliable supply of energy without emitting any climate gases, wind and solar are expected to be the dominated source of uh, energy supply in the future. So if you look at graphs, for instance, prepared by the International Energy Agency, uh, IEA, they sort of draw this graph until 2050. And in 2050, wind and solar are sort of the two uh, dominant suppliers of energy. That's for globally and not specifically for offshore wind. So this is wind, both land-based and offshore. And there are different predictions about how much will be offshore and how much will be onshore. Uh, I don't think anyone has sort of a very a clear answer on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because it's, I suppose you'd think it's where the ocean currents are because they're you know, the sailing routes of the world is where, where wind probably makes sense. But, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a geologist, but I, you'd think that there'd be places pretty much around every coastline where you'd get enough wind. That's that's actually quite good. So uh, you have offshore wind resources very well distributed around the globe. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've seen studies where they uh, predict or calculate that offshore wind can supply 18 times the global electricity um, demand, uh, if you compare it by demand in uh, 2019, sorry, yeah. So, so the, pl- so, the planet could be completely powered by offshore wind. Yeah, if that was the idea. Uh, yeah. I don't think that would be a good idea, though, because <laughs> e- even if I do research in offshore wind, I know that we need uh, multiple sources no, of energy I, I to have it. a safe yeah. uh, supply. So, yeah. uh, But wind and solar and then uh, with a few other sources, that would be good, I think. When it comes to just before we go into the specifics of kind of the work you guys have been doing, um, one of the things that I always wonder is, where wind is actually developing. So we write stories and it seems there's obviously a lot in Europe. Uh, it seems to be a lot you see of onshore wind in America. I'm not so sure about offshore. And again, lots in, in China and, and in India. But I, mean, I, I don't really know about wind in, in Africa and the continent of Africa or around African shores or even in the kind of other parts of Asia. So is it a global 
sort of industry or is it really just in pockets of the planet that yeah we need to to divide between offshore and onshore so right. land-based wind and offshore wind sure. land-based wind is globally developed and it's um, yeah, I give you some numbers, 850 gigawatts of installed power of land-based wind, more or less. Right. Offshore wind is about 50 gigawatts. So it's uh, less than 10%. Right. Yeah, 5% almost. And where, where, <laughs> yeah. where, is, where is offshore wind mainly? Is it mainly Europe? And offshore wind is mainly Europe. Yeah. Mainly Europe. But China has very advanced developments. Uh, Japan is pushing, South Korea is pushing, and uh, the United States of America, USA, North America is really getting momentum on this also. So with the Biden administration, they have started big programs to develop offshore wind. So they have very ambitious targets for that now. What about Africa? Not to my knowledge, any sort yeah. of significant developments yet. Yeah. But there are big, there is a big potential, but I think it's, uh, uh, offshore wind is still a sort of, fairly young industry you can say it's lagging 20 years behind uh, land-based wind in a way yeah and then it's funny if you try to look 20 years ahead and you say okay this is how land-based wind has developed i see yeah what yeah. could happen to offshore yeah yeah and then then it's amazing because in 20 if you go 20 years back land-based wind was about 50 gigawatt the same yeah. that offshore yeah. wind is today yeah. and if we follow the same trajectory in 20 years that means in 2043 we will have uh, you know 800 900 gigawatts of uh, offshore wind it will be quite enormous it would uh, cover about one third of the electricity supply in europe what are you looking at in your research so are you concentrating mainly on offshore wind in the work you guys do yeah that's our main uh, activity yes if you're looking at it now, um, we did cover it in a previous podcast, but, but let's just go through it. I was given a, a, an estimate that it kind of takes between half a decade to a decade to go from, I'm going to build an offshore wind farm to actually it going because of planning laws and all of that. So let's skip the planning part. But the actual building part of it, how efficient do we build these things now? And what what's the main ways of doing it? Because I assume you have to sort of go out there and then you have to put pylons in and pour concrete, but people talk about floating ones and other ways that you can have ones that move around. So can you take us through the technologies that exist right now in building with? Yeah, very good. So first thing we need to do is to divide between floating wind and bottom fixed wind. Right. Almost all the offshore wind that has been built so far has been bottom fixed. It means it is like a land-based turbine, but it's just put out in the sea and the tower that you see is just extended. So it goes below water, obviously, and down into the seabed. And it's piled into the seabed, maybe 50 meters down if it's sand or, you know, so it's it's quite a, a significant construction. And that's all, I assume that's just all concrete and steel and stuff like that. Yeah. That's correct. So it's the steel base is, is uh, hammered or drilled down in the sea to fix it to the seabed. So that's that's one thing. And then you can have sort of jacket constructions or other kind of uh, substructures also instead of monopiles. But most of them are, are monopiles if it's spot and fixed. The technology that we work the most with is floating. 
And that's, right. that I think is really exciting because then there are two principles. One is one I sometimes refer to as the Coca-Cola system. Right. And then you can imagine a glass bottle of, uh, of Coke. Yeah. And you fill it with a bit of sand, one third of the bottle with sand. Uh-huh. No water or no Coke inside, just an empty bottle. And then you put the wind turbine on top. Right. Okay. Yeah. And obviously it's on scale. Yeah. Yeah. And if you put that into the water, it will float stable because it's ballast in the bottom of this uh, bottle. But I mean, so that's, the, the, that's the, wave, the spa, that's yeah, but, the spar boy principle. Right. But won't the waves knock these things over? Uh, not if it's, you know, with enough sand as ballast. Yeah. Uh, that will keep it quite stable. And then you probably wouldn't use a bottle of Coke as the model for this filter, <laughs> but something more, you know. Slightly more robust. Yeah, and designed to, to be stable. And then it's kept uh, the same way you use uh, anchors or mooring lines to keep a ship stable. Understood. You do that with this. But, and then there's one thing. If you just then put the turbine on top, and let it operate as a normal turbine, it would actually become unstable. Right. This is a bit technical, but it's, uh, I think, interesting. When the wind speed increases, you are the normal turbine, you will pitch the blades so to reduce the output power. Yes, I always more, hear that. They, yeah, when, they, yeah. when they spin too much, they reduce them, which I never understood why. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, you know, if you have a turbine which has a rated power of, say, 10 megawatt, uh, then the power will in- the power output will increase the more it blows, obviously. But then you don't want it to produce more than 10 megawatt because if it starts producing just more and more and more, the more it blows, then you would need uh, a generator to be bigger and it would be bigger loads and you would have to build, you know, everything would need to be according to that rated capacity. So you sort of set a cap at one point and say, okay, we cap the power at uh, 10 megawatt for this turbine design, and then it must not deliver more than 10 megawatt, no matter how much it blows, to have a good design. And you do that, and by pitching the blades, you you control the blade speed. When you do that, you also reduce the thrust on the turbine, the force that pushes uh, the yeah. turbine you yeah. know, backwards. Mm-hmm. And when you reduce the thrust, then the turbine, of course, raises a bit forward. And when you raise the turbine forward towards the wind, the wind increases, seen from the wind turbine. And then you pitch more and, you know, the thrust is reduced more and you get an unstable situation. So the turbine will start, you know, just going backward, forward against the wind, if the wind is strong. So that's what's uh, something we we saw and we developed the control system together with the uh, yeah, it was Equino that did this first, and they then developed the system so that the pitching of the blades is done in a way that you keep the turbine stable also in, in, in heavy wind. The idea of these, I mean, how many of these floating wind farms are there now? Uh, not many. I yeah. think there are four floating wind farms, and that is uh, High Wind Scotland. Right, yeah. So this is uh, in the North Sea, is it? up near? Yeah, it's in North Sea. Yeah. And then you have uh, the one that is being built as we speak, uh, Hive in Tampen. Uh, and then there is uh, Kingardic, 
I think is the right name. And are these all around the, the UK coast or are they? Yeah, Highland Company is on the Norwegian side. Highland Scotland is, of course, UK. Yeah. And then King Cardiac is also UK. So with the idea of these, um, as you say, you know, I like the analogy of the floating Coke bottle, the, the floating wind farm. A couple of quick questions. It, does it use less carbon and concrete and all of that emissions to build the things? Two, do they go up quicker than, because obviously to build things in the sea takes a lot of time and energy. And, and the third one is, can you move them? Yeah, yeah. Good questions. So, yeah, there's a, I should start with saying there's two types of floaters. I just explained this uh, Coca-Cola <laughs> type. Yeah. The other one is like a, a barge. Like a barge, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's a semi-submersible uh, floating structure. That was we, that's the sort of a scientific term. Yeah, and that's more, doesn't go as deep as the uh, spar boy. It has a wider area around the turbine. Uh, and there are pros and pros and cons with with both concepts. Now, to your questions, yeah. do you get less footprint in terms of CO two emissions and so on? I think this will be more or less the same if it's bottom fixed or right. or floating in terms of uh, CO two emissions, because the CO two emissions comes from the uh, production of the uh, construction, the the steel and or the concrete or these kind of things, right? Yeah. And and it's very comparable than the amount of material you use for a, a floating turbine or a bottom fixed turbine. It's it's quite comparable. So there I think if it's bottom fixed or floating, you can reduce this by simply using green steel or green concrete or you know, uh, yeah, so yeah. producing yeah. these materials without CO2 emissions. Is it quicker to build these things? Yeah. At the moment, floating wind is, you know, just a niche of a niche. So it's a new technology where you don't have an efficient supply chain. But if the plans that are in place are realized and we are able to build factories to produce floating turbines, this can be series produced much more efficient than bottom fixed because each floater will be the same. If you have bottom fixed, each sort of substructure that shall go into the seabed is a special design because the seabed varies. So it's sort of, but for floaters, everything will be the same. You, you can really have an efficient series production. And I think it, and then you can produce it on land or close to land. Yeah. And then you just, you know, you use tugboats to, the full construction can be with tugboats just out to the site where it's put in operation. And when you put it in operation, it's very simple operation. It You just uh, drop the anchors uh, with the mooring lines, you connect it to the grid and you're, you're done. If it's bottom fixed, you know, you, you come with the substructure, you have to prepare the sand, uh, the, the seabed, you have to yeah, put this substructure into the seabed you have to put the turbine on top you have to do a lot of yeah many weeks of work yeah uh, to con to construct a bottom fixed where you wish you have to do offshore but uh, floating is much quicker and can you although i assume the wind is probably pretty regular you know where wind patterns are globally but if you wanted to move the wind turbine and go actually we're gonna float the thing another 20 30 kilometers that way. Can you do that? 
Yeah, you can do that. Uh, whether it's a good idea, that's not a question. <laughs> uh, because although it sort of may seem tempting that oh, yes, you're just losing the anchor lines and you know how difficult can it be, it's still fairly big constructions. If you see this anchor line, yeah, it's two meter in diameter for one of these rings on the wow. anchors. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, and then you have the the grid. Uh, yeah, the cable, electric cable, that's also quite some dimensions there. And and this needs to be yeah, done in a way so it's stable. Uh, so you wouldn't move it during operation. I don't think that is sort of, at least not uh, for now, but it's obviously much easier once it has done its duty and yeah. it's time to decommission, then it's yeah. quite easy to take it uh, away. A couple of things I want to look at before we end. These things cost a lot, right? They cost a lot in terms of the production, etc. But around them is a load of infrastructure. So people may have heard the term interconnectors, which are like basically big cables. All of these things people are talking about now, could we have a, a subsea power grid across the North Sea? You know, things like this. How much extra technology will we have? And what about the environmental cost of this? Because digging up the sea and shoving cables isn't great for the, <laughs> for the, for the environment, let alone the marine environment as well. Yeah, I think if we are going to have a stable operation of the future power system based very much on wind and solar, it needs to be interconnected. And so we need to utilize the fact that uh, wind varies in time and space. So sometimes it's a calm, calm in the southern Europe and it's wind in the northern Europe. And if it's interconnected, then you can say you always have wind somewhere in Europe and the same with the sun. So, it's, so to have this interconnection is, is important to make the system also yeah, stable and resilient and, and efficient operation of the power system. And then we have already connections between, for instance, Norway and UK. That's a point-to-point high-voltage direct current connection. There is also direct connections between uh, Norway and Germany, Norway and Netherlands, Norway and Denmark, and there are other interconnectors. So we already have these kind of technology solutions for connecting countries with each other. And we have also wind farms connected to land, of course. The new thing uh, with this Nordic grid is to uh, imagine that instead of having a connection between Norway and UK point to point, you have an offshore wind farm also connected to this. And you have maybe more offshore wind farms and maybe sort of yeah, develop a real grid instead of just a point to point line. And that's uh, that's a fee- an efficient way to do this. And uh, there are some technology challenges with having this big a converter station converting electricity from alternating current, AC current, to DC, direct uh, current, uh, they have to be interoperable. So they need to be able to use a converter from one supplier together with a converter from another supplier. That may sound trivial, but it's not. <laughs> but all of this, John, th- these things, you know, uh, it's really hard because... All of it makes sense. We're, we're going towards cleaner power. We all want it. But, but these cables, they're massive. The, the, 
the, the you know you probably have to lay them by ship i'm not sure how they lay whatever or divers so if you look at it all when you do your research putting in mind all of this stuff is it still more carbon negative or positive whatever you want to call it oh, yeah. is it better for the environment for us to do this uh, yeah uh, short answer is yes is absolutely this is important to reduce carbon footprint the balance is more you should take care of nature, marine yes. life, yes. Uh, and and to do this in the best possible way. So how you plan your uh, where to put the cables, it's done by ships, by the way, and how you lay them and, and the technology use is, of course, uh, important. Then the cables themselves, I don't think they have a big environmental impact relatively small footprint on the seabed you know compared to the total area yeah. and it will be covered by uh, gravel and and things so it will be part of the seabed i don't think sort of uh, it's not it's not uh, major damage for the life now of course during installation but it's it's i guess you can compare it by building roads on land yeah it, it has an impact of course and it's but it's not so that you, because you put a road through uh, some wild landscape, you ruin the whole wild landscape, you ruin where you put the road. Uh, so it's it's fairly limited. But I'd like to stress it's important to do this as in as a good way as possible. Yeah, of course. And then you have what you call, yeah, you have temperature, which will be higher around the cable because there are some electric losses, so there'll be some heating. And there will be electromagnetic fields around the cable. Yeah. And we are working on projects to understand and visualize uh, better how how will it affect the electromagnetic field? Uh, how large will it be? What will be the extraction? And and how can possibly how will this affect uh, uh, marine life? And there yeah, is research all going yeah. on on that. Yeah, because there's a lot of unanswered questions about how fish and mammals ma navigate using magnetic fields and people say that you know you know some critics say these things could cause you know whales to go off course or things like that i suppose we don't really know do we at least i don't know yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, i well, know gonna know <laughs> yeah but i quite but i know there are quite some experts working on this and i'm i'm quite sure we will we will be able to pair this grid so that's it can operate. We have discussions very often with this. If you don't do anything, okay, then we know that uh, the CO2 concentrations will go up. This mm. will have a big impact on marine life yes, and, uh, and the ocean. So, so I think uh, doing this is sort of reducing damage. Before we end, you, you look at, you know, where things are and you, you, you've outlaid how some of these changes will happen. I always like to ask people to take me forward. So let's go to 2050. How much of, of the world do you think will be using offshore wind? And will we see more of these floating wind farms, do you think, rather than what we've got at present? Or will it be maybe a new technology by then? Who knows? Hmm. Yeah. My best sort of estimate is that more or less one third of the uh, global electricity supply will be from uh, offshore wind. Wow. Somewhere around there. And I think floating will be a big part of that because once we get the uh, volume and technology developed on this, 
uh, I think that will be a cost-efficient solution and you can put them far offshore. And then, then this, I don't know if it will happen or not, but I'm, I'm sort of having this idea inside my head that, uh, okay, could we have floating winds, wind turbines that just are operating on themselves oh, far a- off? Oh, here we go. Know, AI-powered wind turbines. (laughs) Yeah, and they they are producing hydrogen or some hydrogen-based fuel. Yeah. Some autonomous ship just comes and and pick up this compressed gas from time to time, and they just operate it there, you know, far out, uh, somewhere where it blows and blows. And you don't have any grid connection, and you just... So you minimize the environmental impact uh, to absolutely zero. You have a very high... Uh, generation capacity and and you have this uh, access to a sustainable uh, fuel whether that will happen or not i don't know but i think it's an inspiring uh, picture well that is an inspiring one and uh full of uh, techno craziness which are, i'm sure the the next few decades will will sort and let us know uh, john it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for coming on and in giving us some insight in the world of the science and the research that's going on. And uh, just to end with, you'll continue to do research in this field now, you, you, your, your, your team, and you think we'll end up with a more sustainable wind industry, hopefully as well, in terms of, kind Abs- of what it's absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast this week. Thank you. Uh, John, I love Tanda there. And check out the work of Sintef. It's really interesting stuff. Before I go, a last quick word on, obviously, the Big Zero Show. Tickets are available now. So if you're a small company, a SME, mid-size, a public sector organization, if you care about Net Zero, if you want to know more about it, get your free ticket now. Go to thebigzeroshow.com or futurenetzero.com and register now to grab your ticket. And we've got some great speakers coming. I'll be able to announce another big name hopefully next week. Uh, but we're pushing forward in trying to create content. So June the 20th at the Coventry Building Society Arena. Put that date in your diary. Uh, my thanks to Rob for putting together the podcast. As I said at the beginning, keep subscribing. Uh, let us know if you want to be on it. NetHero at futurenetzero.com. And I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.